Welcome to Radio Survivor. We're here for the love of radio and sound. I'm Paul Reismandel, and joining me is Eric Klein. Hello, everybody. And also joining me is Jennifer Waits. Greetings. And today we're going to dive into the hidden history of podcasting. There's a story many people who've looked into podcasting or way into podcasting kind of know about the history that kind of puts it starting around 2004 and 2005 and ties it up with the existence of the iPod and Steve Jobs being on stage saying, now you can listen to, to podcasts and iTunes, but there's more to it. Yeah, and I think what's, what's fun about speaking with Andrew Bottomley, Assistant Professor of Media Studies at SUNY Oneonta, is the um, what's being left out of the of that commonly uh, known history of podcasts with the the founding father of podcasts is um, well some more of the of the personal touches and, and what makes mm. what makes podcasts mm-hmm. that we love uh, special. And we also learned that a lot of it has to do with definition and and the word podcasting really becomes a rallying point for people to understand uh, what this audio what the certain type of audio is, but a lot of other things were happening that maybe might not have been called podcasting. Yeah. Lots of radio, lots of radio available on computers. Well, let's jump right into that interview. So we're here today with Andrew Bottomley, Assistant Professor of Media Studies in the Department of Communication and Media at SUNY Oneonta. Andrew, I'm so happy to have you on the Radio Survivor Show today. Well, thank you for having me. I'm excited. My interest was piqued when I saw that you were giving a talk at the Harvard Divinity School about the origins of podcasting. And it sounds like you were revealing podcasting's early hidden history, that podcasting started much earlier than most people believe. So I I thought we would start with with you talking about when did podcasting really begin? And and what was it called at that point? Right. Um, So... This is where I, I, I probably tell you some things you don't know, and then and then leave things ambiguous a little bit, um, because I think as you're as you're suggesting there, there's kind of an alternative history, or, or rather maybe more histories of podcasting. There's um, it's a case of in some in some ways multiple invention, but also a case of uh, you know sort of some false starts and fail technologies and things. So a lot of it ends up being kind of how you define podcasting exactly. You know, one of the things I was talking about there is is I think we often go by more kind of uh, technological definitions of podcasting. You know, if you ask a lot of people what a podcast is, they'll probably give you an answer that involves something along the lines of on-demand, internet-based audio that's on-demand and mobile, and maybe it includes like RSS technology, right? Um, and I find that to be, uh, you know, a, a bit of a, a thorny definition. Um, it actually doesn't, for one, it just doesn't tell us that much about what is kind of interesting about podcasting as a medium in terms of, you know, form and style. I think a lot of times when people are talking about podcasting, that's not really, the technology isn't really the thing that is interesting about podcasting, but they use the technology as the measure of what makes the medium, right, which is sort of an odd uh, thing. But nevertheless, you know, it, it's, it's a story that generally begins in uh, the early 2000s, around 2000, 2001. Although, again, if you're, I'll maybe sort of save this one for a little bit later. 
uh, if you want to really kind of go with the technological definition, podcasting could be as old as 1993 and the very beginnings of internet radio um, mm. in terms of the kind of on-demand bit uh, that people seem to cling to when they define podcasting. But the sort of the technology, uh, or rather the sort of the, 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 the media as we know it, that would evolve into podcasting as it's been kind of widely understood over the past decade or so does have its roots around 2000, 2001 um, really kind of goes through a, a couple few years of oh, kind of false starts and people really kind of playing with it, but it not really building a lot of momentum and then starts to kind of uh, grow around 2004 and 2005. But even that is the kind of what's I think interesting is because there's a lot of the popular histories of podcasting really only start in either like mid late 2004 or 2005. As, as I'm sure you, you, you would be aware, you know, back in 2015, just a few years ago now, there were a lot of kind of 10 years of podcasting kind of articles and things mm. being written. So, in, uh, and, you know, Slate did that a whole series, uh, a really good series of articles about podcasting um, and uh, that they, it was, it was like called 10 years in your ears. And they published that in, I think, December of 2014. So they were marking that as the sort of 10 year anniversary. And um, and even I know in academia, a lot of people mark sort of 2004, 2005 as the origin date. Um, but And why do you uh, think that is? Like what was significant about 2004, 2005? Yeah. So the, you know, and, and, and I'm sure you've heard a version of this, right? So the, I'll, I'll give you kind of maybe the, uh, the popular history of podcasting. Um, the story, the kind of the story that's been th- that's probably been most widely told, and then and then kind of work backwards from there. Yeah, a little and bit. then and then we we expect you to debunk parts of it. That's the fun. That's exactly. Why we're here. I so know. The, the most widely reported kind of origin story goes something like: there's this guy named Adam Curry, uh, <laughs> who who's you know the the pod father, if you will, right? Um, but the, a radio host, a former MTV VJ who had in the early 2000s or so been kind of remaking himself as an internet entrepreneur. And he wanted to find a way to deliver audio files over the internet without the weight, right, that was involved in kind of on-demand streaming or or standard downloading. Of course, we're still talking about early 2000s. So, uh, you know, the the technology for on-demand streaming and downloading was, uh, while a few years developed at this point, for those of us who lived through that time, remember, it didn't work all so good. You know, it was right. it was still pretty slow and lots of buffering and all that kind of stuff. So they were trying. So Curry kind of had this idea around late 2000 uh, to to try to figure out around uh, the, the solution around this kind of problem of waiting for um, audio files. Uh, you know, and so he went to Dave Weiner, um, the software developer, um, who had been really uh, integral in developing RSS technology was very was very influential in um, early blogging culture. And, and when we um, talk and, about RSS, Andrew, uh, you know what we're talking about is it's a technology for sort of summarizing what's on a website, right? Uh, it's called really right. simple syndication, and so it's exactly. this kind of file that uh, many that, that blogs in particular uh, started to generate around that time. Dave Weiner uh, developed this yeah. kind of technology so that you could have a reader software 
to kind of, instead of you having to check every website every day to see if there's new stuff, you would have this one kind of aggregated uh, reader that would tell you, okay, I've got all these right. new articles in all these different places. I think that's an important it, kind of uh, background because not everybody uh, yeah. uses RSS yeah. any longer. And if, no, I might, and, if, and if I might be a bit of a grandpa here and explain the internet to, to the kids, this was, <laughs> this was back before Facebook's feed took over all internet ideas and and really this was a way for users of the internet to sort of create their own feeds independent of this weird massive uh, corporation that now controls so many eyeballs um and that i mean it was a neat way that the internet uh grew in the early aughts that then sort of um was was mirrored by all these other uh more successful corporations it was an indie way it was an indie way for us to get to get information from multiple places. Absolutely. Yeah, so it's one of the backbones of blogs and newsfeed aggregators. Uh, yeah, it, it enabled, RSS enabled digital audio files to be delivered uh, into, as you said, you know, these RSS uh, feed kind of a- aggregators. And so, yeah, so that was 2001. Um, but the real, the hitch here is that that audio RSS technology that, Again, a lot of definitions of, of podcasting to this day, they use that kind of technological definition. Um, it existed, but hardly anyone used it. So the, Dave, Dave Weiner has this quote where he says, you know, we threw it out there. Uh, we evangelized, evangelized it. And it was like, if you build it, they will come. But they didn't come. Uh, so they kind of created the technology, but it just sort of sat there. And even Curry himself, who was, of course, an experienced radio personality, didn't really produce anything resembling a podcast until about August of 2004. So it was a few years. It sort of sat around for a few years. Um, and there yeah, were... I, I think it's also important to remind people that uh, this is a pre-smartphone uh, era, so you couldn't you couldn't use your phone like a radio and listen to right. it. And... Um, so, but and at what point were we? Because then, I mean, it's called podcasting. I don't want to jump the gun, but we're also uh, when does um, right. when do iPods factor into the history of podcasting? I guess right. So that's yeah. So that becomes the one of the big the big jumps there, right? So and and I'm gonna forget the exact date that the that the iPod gets launched, but I know it's basically 2004 is the year. Where I think it was this the Christmas of two thousand four, where the iPod was like the gift, right? Yeah. So it, it, I think it came out earlier in two thousand four. I might be wrong. Maybe it was sometime in two thousand three. But it's really two thousand four where the iPod um, becomes this sort of this yeah this portable media device um, that everyone now has, and of course they're looking for content to put on the thing, um, and of course much of it was music. But we start to have this opportunity here. Um, for audio, radio, kind of other types of programming to be used on the device. So yeah, it's around really around 2004 um, where kind of this initial kind of multimedia, this multimedia blogging experiment of kind of carrying audio files and RSS feeds starts to coalesce and to what we might call an invention, uh, or dare we say a medium? I, I, I don't prefer <laughs> personal. I don't personally prefer to call podcasting a medium for a, a whole other digressive uh, reasons. But, but it was it was uh, so podcasting really starts to become a viable technology in kind of mid late two thousand four. And there's a few things here again, the sort of the popular history that always gets cited. So, um, Adam Curry releases the first, uh, at least widely used, podcatcher client. 
um, called iPotter, uh, so that enabled people to uh, be able to get their uh, the, these sort of online audio files onto their iPods. Because oh, um, iTunes didn't do podcasts yet. Mm-hmm. Okay. So the uh, right that that happens in two thousand five. Um, is when we get iTunes with uh, I'm going to forget the the version on the, off the top of my head, but it, it's it was in sort of mid late 2005 that you get the the version of iTunes that uh, includes a Podcatcher client, which then makes sort of iTunes the default, right. um, you know, listening uh, platform for for podcasts. Um, and then Curry also launches the first at least breakout program. Um, that was a podcast, which was daily source code. So those are kind of watershed moments in the sort of in the path to widespread use. And so there's a certainly a good amount of truth to that story, um, even though there's a kind of a lot more than that that doesn't always kind of get re- recounted. Um, so let's but, bring uh, let's bring it back yeah. then, uh, Andrew Bottomley. You, you gave us sort of what is the popular received history of podcasting, right? That gets repeated over and over again when people talk about the history that it's that it comes about, you know, becomes popular ish uh, around 2004 and explodes much more so when when Apple begins to support podcasting very explicitly by integrating it into iTunes, the software which connects people's iPods to their computers because they're otherwise not network devices, right? They, they, you have to download shows and audio onto them. And so Apple speeds this process, makes it easy to get a podcast from the internet into their iPods. But, but you're telling us that there's this history that lies before this, that, that, that there's more to right. podcasting than this. So, so why do you, you know, give us some examples of, of, some, of some broadcasts or proto-podcasts or actual podcasts that you think uh predate th- this happening sure um so i guess uh, I'll, I'll 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 still stick with some of the more widely known versions of this um and and actually and so i was at harvard right giving this talk that uh, as as jennifer mentioned um and i think it's interesting cuz a lot of the early history again kind of that's at least more widely known does start in at harvard and at the berkman center um, Benjamin Walker's theory of everything did a secret histories of podcasting episode a couple few years ago, and it mm. and it focused on, uh, a, and it focused on this version, which was uh, still involves uh, Curry and particularly Dave Weiner, but also Christopher Lydon, um, who's the popular Boston talk radio host who had been, uh, who had who had been on the air uh, on WBUR. Uh, for quite a long time, uh, you know, so public radio uh, host um, and left WBUR in 2001 following an ownership dispute over the over his call in program, the, the, the connection. And he had transitioned to uh, producing it as a live online radio program through his personal website. So this is uh, again around 2001. And then while he was there and he had become a, a fellow at Berkman in 2003, Weiner was also a fellow at Berkman at that same time. So Dave Weiner had been brought to Harvard to get Harvard blogging. I think was the, like, what, the way they put it, because <laughs> this is the this is the pinnacle of of the the blogging phenomenon, right? Circa sort of 2002, 2003, um, and uh, and so there's a, a lot of connections between what we now call podcasting and blogging. 
Um, and they're not just incidental connections. Like literally, again, if you're using that technological definition of podcasting, that often uh, people point to the sort of RSS as being um, one of the key components uh, for being able to make this, these audio programs on demand and, uh, and downloadable and mobile. Um, the, you know, they're using the same technology. RSS was really the backbone of blogging. Um, but it was it goes beyond that, right? And so a lot of people understood these sort of new audio uh, online audio programs that were being produced um, as a, as basically an audible version of blogging. And one of the names that it was called was audio blogging. Um, and so Leiden had been uh, Christopher Leiden had gotten partnered with uh, a computer engineer named Bob Doyle at, at the Desktop Video Group in Cambridge. Um, and built kind of this portable web audio studio, um, and uh, and Dave, as Dave Weiner was sort of introducing him and basically pushing Chris Lydon to move away from doing his, or at least take a set a set a side step away from doing kind of just online um, radio webcasts to do these sort of audio blogs, uh, which would be downloadable uh, and never broadcast or, or, or webcast. Um, and so he did a series of interviews in the summer of 2003 that they called audio blogs. And it was a series that was called like Christopher Lydon interviews. And it was basically an interview series where he interviewed like various intellectuals like Howard Bloom and Cornel West and, and a lot of prominent bloggers and technologists, people like Doc Searles and Julie Powell and Daley Koss. And so that's what a lot of people identify as as the first podcast. Hmm. So were there... The, and these are kind of prominent examples. I'm sort of curious. Right. Did you also have hobbyists who were audio blogging who who most people have never heard of? It, it, absolutely, yeah. And so there were um you know and 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 there were a lot of these people were kind of they were hobbyists but they were really technologists, right? So so again, it's Dave Weiner as a technologist who's a software developer. Um, and a and a blogger, but really a, a a blogger because he's a software developer and he's usually he's using blogs and he started out doing kind of email newsletters and then moved out to blogs as a way of basically publicizing um, and connecting the kind of software developer world um, and so really kind of coming from more of a kind of community media um, and uh, perspective, not trying to kind of professionalize this in any way. So yeah, it would kind of fit a little more closer into what we might call kind of amateurs or hobbyists, because it is an interesting kind of tale of, you know, Leiden kind of comes in and does this one-off, um, you know, series that gets called the first podcast. But even Weiner himself has said that in a way that really wasn't a podcast, because he's as a, as a software guy, um, sees that podcasting as a technology is really something that is kind of democratized, right? And that it really is, you know, not part of the mainstream media establishment. And so that example of what Christopher Lydon was doing was essentially like NPR style, fresh air style right. interviews with prominent figures or fairly prominent figures. There wasn't really anything there in terms that was sort of changing uh, you know, changing the game, if you will, right? Um, but what you did start to get was other people right around that same time, again, often many of them coming out of Dave Weiner's circle in sort of fall of 2003 and into 2004, um, people like Stephen Downs, who did a show called Ed Radio, and Dave Slusher, who did a show called Evil Genius Chronicles, and Doug Kay did a show called IT Conversations, and Steve Gilmore and, and a show called The Gilmore Gang. Um 
they were all early podcasters uh, who made contributions to sort of uh, to developing this new technology and creating programming for it too. But it, it's the interesting thing to notice is that they're all kind of tied into this this blogger community. Um, that and there was this conference that was held uh, called BloggerCon in, in October of two thousand three, um, which where it was one of the places where they really started experimenting with kind of audio blogging, and it was sort of demonstrated to this larger group of kind of of, of really dedicated kind of technologist bloggers. And so you see that kind of becoming a, there was a quick takeoff there within that kind of techie community uh, to start developing more of this sort of audible version of blogging. Um, but it was still really super niche, right? Like most of these shows um, th- that that I just mentioned were all kind of about blogging and and like internet technology. And in fact, that was a really common theme of blogging early on, right? The whole idea of a web log was like a, uh, was a, was a log of websites. Um, so it was really kind of meta in that sense of sort of like it, like a, 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 it was like basic, and then many of them were just lists of links. Um, and so a lot of the early audio blogs were also kind of just about audio blogging. So uh, right? did you also, did you also have, I'm also thinking about things like live journal and, yeah. and early blogs where it was really like a diary so was that same thread carried through with audio blogs as well? Well, right, and and there and that's true, and that's where you start to get a kind of a divergence from the more commonly told stories. So, like all of that stuff that I, I just sort of said with with Dave Weiner and Christopher Lydon, um, and uh, and the blogger con kind of community is it's out there. I mean, that history it's not like it's super widely reported, but if you're going to find a history of kind of podcasting online or something, it's, it's probably going to be some, you might, you might get those names. So you might be able to dig them up. Um, and, uh, and, but what you, what you don't hear a lot about was, yeah, as as you're saying, Jennifer, that there's a whole other kind of, um, community of bloggers of just more everyday people who are doing just these more kind of like memoir-esque style of blogging, kind of documenting their daily lives, that they're not technologists. They're not part of that kind of culture. And, uh, and yeah, if you, they, they were doing stuff um, online um, with audio that actually w- even goes back a little bit earlier than those kind of Christopher Lydon interviews, like I said, which were more like the summer of 2003, um, there was um, a service named Odd Blog. Anybody remember that? Odd Blog. I do. A- is it A U D? Blog. Yeah. Yeah. A U D. I've never heard of it. Uh, you said you remember it, Jennifer. I do. Um, and so that was uh, going one of these sort of early services, uh, of which there were actually a, a handful of different ones that they were called. They were phone to blog services. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what you would do is basically, so again, the technology for ordinary folks, um, didn't really exist. It was very expensive and very complicated to even record what we're all doing right now, you know, simply sort of talking into a microphone and getting it on your computer and, and getting it online, um, was really quite, 
was was really quite difficult. And like when I mentioned that Christopher Lydon example, like, yeah, he had to collaborate with a couple of technologists and software people to kind of build a basic setup where he could have his own little portable audio studio. And you, right. if, you Did, go, if you go online, you can kind of find there's some websites that, that Bob Doyle has where he shows, you know, the equipment and everything. It was really quite involved. Yeah. Digitizing right? audio, even it, even in the early aughts, was still kind of in the 90s era um, you know, you recorded audio onto one medium and then getting it onto a computer was either uh, involved multi-thousand dollars piece of equipment to make audio sound okay because everyone's sound cards sounded horrendous if they recorded a microphone into their computer. Or, or mm-hmm. you, yeah, you just there was work. There was a huge whole step of real-time work. If you recorded an hour of audio, you'd have to sit down and now do an hour or so of digitizing of that audio. Um, right. There were steps, too many steps. Right. And so there were these these phone to blog services, were, which were really ultimately very short lived. Um, but they began around early 2003 yeah. um, and then and then kind of died out when podcasting became more widespread uh, around 2005. Um, and, and the technology, you know, developed pretty quickly to, to make some of these uh, kind of home recorded audio, uh, digital audio, kind of easier. So, but basically, what they were. So the the audio equivalent, and I, and the reason why I'm really intrigued by the audio blogging, apart from it being um, like audio blogging services like Audblog, apart from it being this this kind of lost history, um, which I think really is worth is worth knowing. Um, but is that it also is a little more instructive in terms of uh, where podcasting may diverge from traditional radio and may offer new opportunities um, in terms of both who can speak and who has access and also in terms of form and and aesthetics a little bit too. I mean, the audio equivalent of a blog post would be these really short personal audio recordings. And when I say short, I mean like literally only a couple few minutes long. Um, And they were really super reflexive. People would just reflect on kind of every aspect of contemporary life. It really blurred together aspects of sort of public and private life, um, which is what we associate with blogging, but also, again, what we really, I think a lot of people associate as being what's most unique about podcasting today is the way it kind of is more conversational, is more, you know, people use those terms like intimate or authentic. So how are Uh, people, how are those services marketing like what were they saying that that service was? What were people's expectations when they ran across right. a, a voicemail type uh, audio blog service? Right. So, so these would be, uh, you know, th- 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 these would be things that were tied into, um, or at least potentially, they did become. So, so Oddblog launched in February of two thousand three, and it promoted itself really as this kind of community building kind of free speech enabling kind of media service for participatory media very much again like an evolutionary step in blogging yeah a pre pre facebook moment where you could share with your friends things about your life in a serialized fashion and multiple friends could share with each other in a common space and and part of what made them really quite accessible was um, was the simplicity of it. And so shortly after its its launch in, in early 2003, um, Oddblog, which was by far the most popular of these services, um, actually teamed with with uh, Blogger, right? So the, the, the popular kind of Google-backed uh, blog publishing service Blogger, and they created a co-branded service called Audio Blogger. 
Um, and, but, you know, interestingly, and, and so the idea was that, you know, if you have a blog, if you have a, a blog through Blogger, you can just, uh, you can just use this connected uh, service to call in and record, uh, you know, record your, your short audio blog message, um, and it'll post automatically to your blog and get put into your RSS feed and go out to your subscribers, right? Um, and the really cool thing about this, though, is that, like, they actually, they, they sound, like, if you ever get to hear any of them, and, and I can I can share a couple examples with you um, at some point, but they're they're a little difficult to to find online because these services went out of business and there's no record that their that their archives have been sort of saved and but wow. you can okay you can occasionally dig one or two up using the wayback machine but they sound like voicemail messages and it's like they were voicemail messages basically <laughs> it's a beautiful day here in San Francisco the sunlight streaming through my window and interesting and fantastic acute angles bouncing off of broad green leaves of a plant that's sitting in my window. Very excited about today. Lots of cool things happening. Lots of buzz on the web. So we'll see where it takes us. They were voicemail messages, basically. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, they were, right. they were, you were calling up on your phone and a lot of people were calling up from mobile phones and recording these things like kind of while they were just waiting around, like they were waiting in line or they were waiting for appointment and they'd just call up and they'd have this really kind of conversational style. They'd be like, hey, uh, so I'm doing this thing and it's, it's, everything's really exciting today. And it'll be very super reflexive about that very moment. And so if you were calling up and doing one of those things though, the, the, the thing that, uh, I think also keeps it though ver- a little bit radio like is is it would be posted almost immediately after you recorded it right because the because the, the, it was an automated service so as soon as you you know uh, hung up it automatically would post it to your blog so it would be heard by people within moments you know within minutes uh, of of it being recorded so there was a very um, you know the all of that kind of stuff that we associate with live radio of like presentness and of witnessing. Yeah, it's, um, it's, it's what, even more live than than a podcast in 2018, really. In a lot of ways, yeah, absolutely. And again, this is where I think it's kind of interesting as as a sort of like a road that podcasting could have taken that ultimately it didn't. Although I do think sort of certain elements of this this audio this version of audio blogging did carry over. Um, yeah, into, it's a little bit like how people talk to their Instagram feed now. <laughs> right. Really? I'm well, start. the early days of Twitter too. It feels right. like where people were like, "I'm eating lunch right now." Well, so 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 Jennifer mentions Twitter, and maybe she's setting me up because she knows a little bit of where <laughs> this is going. Because I know she's she's heard a version of this this before from me. But the really interesting thing about Oddblog. So Oddblog um, was uh, created by this guy named Noah Glass. Um, who is a San Francisco kind of you know Silicon Valley like young entrepreneur guy, um, and so again it got um, you know he it was he was a software developer who in 2002 happened to live next door to a guy named Evan Williams, uh, so the young <laughs> internet entrepreneur entrepreneur who co-created Blogger, which he sold to Google. Um, for millions in, in 2003. And so Williams brief, briefly stayed on at Google and, and including brokering that audio blogger licensing deal. Um, but by the fall of 2004, he was looking to branch out and start another company. Um, and so, right, we're talking about fall 2004. So podcasting has started to pick up a little bit more. 
um, you know, like with all the the sort of the Weiner Curry kind of side of the narrative, um, and pod and and iPod starting to come into play more. Um, and so in December of 2004, Williams partners with Noah Glass, again, who's the creator of Oddblog, to start a new company that they called Odeo. Um, and that and, and their intention there with Odeo was to create this kind of one stop uh, kind of podcasting solution, this sort of one source solution for finding and subscribing and also creating and publishing audio content. Wow. And so they got a they got a bunch of uh, they got like five million dollars of investment capital. Um, and they created, they, they started building Odeo, um, but the main product, Odeo's main product, uh, was still the Odd Blog audio blogger service. Um, but they eventually surrounded that with a sort of set of audio recording and editing tools. So they had like a, an, what they called an audio studio software. They had a podcast directory, uh, customizable playlist capabilities, all those things that we kind of expect out of a, an iTunes-like podcast kind of player, although also more... Uh, f- uh, tools for creators, interestingly enough. So it was, it was, uh, uh, you know, once iTunes kind of became the thing, it was more just a delivery distribution mechanism. This was both a kind of production and distribution kind of tool. But um, so this is all like early, late 2004, early 2005. But then, yeah, it's it's iTunes 4.9. I just remembered um, was the was the was the version of iTunes that came out with pod catching tools in June of 2004 and, you know, just wipes out the whole market for end to end podcasting solutions. And a bunch of other people had been trying to develop these kind of, these kind of all in one podcasting tools. And so Odeo, which is barely a year old, was basically dead in the water. So they had to pivot and reinvent themselves. Um, And they went from being this sort of simple blog blogging like tool for audio messaging to being a simple blogging-like tool for text messaging called, ta-da, Twitter. Yeah. Right, so Twitter, it grows out of this sort of audio blogging um, technology. And and the link between audio as a podcasting company and Twitter as a microblogging platform is, is, is typically seen as kind of trivial or inconsequential, if it's even acknowledged at all. Um, and, and, uh, you know, cause it's the roots obviously of, of Twitter as we know it today was in SMS, right? Short messaging, uh, service sort of text messaging. Um, but what's really interesting is that this idea of broadcasting one's status and, and there's a lot of attention gets drawn to Dak. Jack Dorsey, who was one of the computer programmers at Twitter, who developed the original name for what we now call Twitter was was called status, like stat.us. And it was this idea, though, of broadcasting one's status in a really sort of short, personalized message to a close group of friends and followers, right? That's essentially what Oddblog and Audioblogger had already been doing. It was just that you know, again, if you, it would be people who followed your blog, who subscribed to your blog. So that's your kind of close group of friends and followers. And, and, a, and a blog, the, the type of blogging that we're talking about here um, is the more personal kind of memoir-esque version of blogging. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, what, it, and so if you subscribe to that and you would get these short little kind of like telephone, uh, you know, audio blog messages um, in your feed, they'd be these short sort of two to three minute messages because that's all the technology could hold, by the way. You could only take a few minutes um, because of the file size and whatnot. So th- that was somewhat of a technological constraint um, that was put on audio blogging, but it nevertheless resulted in this form of these kind of, again, a, a succession, what a blog is, is a succession of posts just 
done chronologically. So it's just the only thing that really unites anything in a blog is the individual from which these thoughts are coming. Because it's the idea that like, you know, and, and again, that's like with Twitter and microblogging, it's the idea like one time, you know, what one post you're talking about your job and something in your professional career, and then you're talking about what you had for lunch, and then you're talking about picking up your kids at school, right? Like, you know, and it's sort of just the thing that connects all those together, the thread is, uh, has more to do with the individual. And so it's this really personalized form of media. That's why so much, so many people talk about, you know, Twitter and social media as being personal media. And blogging, of course, was that early on. Um, and so, so there was audio blogging too. And it's just the difference is that it was audio rather than text. And it was spread across these sort of in- individual blogs rather than sort of together on a shared site. But it would be brought together in your kind of feed reader um, into, into a single place. And I just think, you know, what's kind of cool about that whole story, I guess that if I have a kind of main point there, it's that the forerunner of today's podcasting, um, audio blogging, was based on sort of certain logics, particularly certain logics of radio, right? Connectivity, sharing, emotional disclosure that we particularly associate with talk radio um, that have since become kind of everywhere commonplace in our social networks. And and like Odd, Odd, Odd Blog's tagline was think it, speak it. Like it was this idea that, you know, anyone who wants to have a voice can have a voice, that, that really democratized idea of, of kind of, of digital media. And a lot of like media scholars and journalists and whatnot talk of, like kind of metaphorically about how sites, text-based sites like Twitter can kind of quote, give voice to ordinary individuals, particularly like more marginalized or more underprivileged groups. But audio blogging sought to like literally give voice to everyone. Um, you know, and, uh, you know, so Twitter came really close to creating a world in which everyone communicated through like 28 second audible tweets instead of 280 character written ones. Um, in fact, the interesting when when they were developing the version of Twitter that we all know and love today, um, you know, they had I, I believe I don't it was, love had, Twitter today. <laughs> well, um, maybe not today, but we liked, you know, a couple a, a couple years ago before it got kind of taken over by certain someone's. Um, but, you know, they were they were working on, I think, three versions of it that would have used audio. Yeah. That's interesting. Uh, and and created this what they called like a mobile listening post function. And then there was one that was the text version. And it's that text version that um, that that obviously ended up getting getting developed. Um, so there's this sort of like interesting kind of a history that almost was sort of thing. But but even though it was ultimately a failed technology, that, that version of audio blogging, I do think it, it, it did embed certain kinds of logics um, of communication and particularly of that idea of uh, of kind of a uh, an, a more an aesthetic of kind of unscripted, unedited chat. Um, along with kind of more personal stories and these sort of very frank expressions of affect that that we often associate with podcasting today. And it also, again, gets associated with Twitter and the like, um, which which I think had at least there was a uh, audio blogging was at least a, a significant part of that becoming kind of, you know, uh, developed in, in terms of uh, sort of like Internet media. Um, and it's just, you know, mostly uh, sort of overlooked. And so I like to, the, the opportunity to kind of bring that, to bring people's attention back to it and looking at how it kind of, uh, you know, created these opportunities for this really, truly kind of user-generated, uh, personalized media. 
Mm-hmm. And that's the voice of Andrew Bottomley. He's an assistant professor of media studies at the Department of Communication and Media at SUNY Oneonta in New York State. You're listening to Radio Survivor. We're here for the love of radio and sound. I'm Paul Reismandel. With me are Eric Klein and Jennifer Waits. Radio Survivor is supported by Spinatron. Each week, Spinatron compiles a chart of the top 100 albums played on community and college radio stations. Artists, labels, and promoters can get access to the Spinatron database to track how their music is performing. Learn more at spinatron.com slash chart. That's S-P-I-N-I-T-R-O-N dot com slash chart. I wanted to kind of drill down a little bit on this on this prehistory. And I first just have like a real quick clarifying question. Through sure. all of these platforms, and going back to audio blogging into these days of like 2001, 2002, people are posting on their blogs actual like MP3 files. Is that correct? That, pe- that you can download. This is not real media or some other streaming sort of thing. Because it's, I know, I know you don't like the technical definition, but I, I, I tend, no. I tend to lean on that a little bit. So these are all MP3 files through all of this. And. MP3 files that could be either streamed on your blog or downloaded. Or downloaded. Okay. Because I, I and want... if you were and if you were subscribing to someone's blog, it would be fed into your feed reader, which means it would be downloaded. Right. Along along with uh, you know any text posts that were put up. Right. And and it's only you know circa 1999, 98, in which you know MP3s become really a viable technology for for the standpoint of your average personal computer. And of course, you know, MP3 players didn't even really exist much until you know until around 2000. A real practical sense, um, but I wanted to kind of tease out this relationship with radio, if I may. Yeah. Um, because you know, it is the case that you know, going back to the early days of internet radio, uh, radio shows on demand started to pop up by the by the mid to late 90s, right? But they were typically not MP3 files, right? They were streamed via something like Real Audio. Or um, Windows Media. Uh, yeah, I, I listened. That. I listened to a huge amount of This American Life in the in the in the in the two thousand Z range. That was just uh, streaming one episode at a time off right. the desktop via like real media. And yeah. but yet I, I can say I'm gonna I'm gonna share some of my prehistory here. Is I started this radio show uh, called Media Geek uh, at, at a community radio station WEFT in March of 2002, and I had a blog by the same name, and every week I would post the MP3 of right. my show because uh, I was like, wait, there's no reason why I can't do this. And certainly I was, that was not an original idea that I had um, to, to kind of bridge my sort of community radio show and blogging like that. It seemed to me at that moment natural uh, to do so, um, and yet we didn't have the word podcasting, and, and in that moment at least – I can't say that in in that moment, I that there was no RSS technology uh, for the enclosure for for sending out the MP3. But if there were, I did not know about it. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you uncover that? Do you see this relationship with with radio and probably more so in in like community college or public radio? I suppose where that kind of experimentation would have been would have been more likely to happen. Frankly, do do we have that history there? I'm sorry, experimentation with podcasting. In yeah, particular? I mean, yeah, in in, in this in this pre-form in this you know this sort of early form do, do you do you see this this experimentation with like either community college or maybe public radio stations putting their shows online as a downloadable 
as a downloadable file rather than something that's streamed before you know the sort of the RSS automatic downloading existed. Um, I mean, there is certainly plenty of stations, including some college stations, um, although I would point more to, um, you know, the public radio kind of sphere um, where they were um, archiving or some version of archiving of things online. And, and, um, you know, in this particular, the the podcasting history, like the, the college stations, I haven't uncovered a lot. Um, you know, I think you had some sort of version of, uh, like with radio kind of certain DJs would maybe be more aware of the opportunities of the net and, uh, post their shows, uh, you know, uh, like, like, you know, like radio air check tapes almost or something, you know, just to get them out there. But the, having a kind of like a, a fully developed, uh, kind of strategy as to yeah I doubt putting... yeah I, I don't yeah I wouldn't expect a fully developed strategy right I, I meant more I was definitely yeah. leaning more towards that experimental kind of thing where let's try this um, but but you know that there was still a lot of uh, you know even that you know uh, NPR and 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 uh, and its kind of affiliates and things really like to take a lot of credit for internet radio being sort of pioneers and and. Um, it's not that they weren't involved, but I think their level of involvement was needs to be like kind of put into a little bit of context um, because they, they had the resources for one. So this is going back even into the mid 90s, like once real audio comes around and kind of very quickly becomes the standard for streaming audio on the Web. Um, they were putting, you know, programs online, and this would continue into the early 2000s. It certainly grew a lot more in the in the in the early mid 2000s of of stations like regularly putting uh, some of their programming online. But I say I want to sort of temper it and say some of their programming, right? They they're not archiving everything, right? Um, because server space uh, and it was still really expensive. So this is not like, you know, nowadays we're pretty used to if you, you know, going online and then maybe you heard a story on the radio and you expect to find it, you know, um, pretty much the full day of programming available for, for streaming or download on, on a major public media you know, radio station website. That wasn't really happening. What they would do is they'd sort of pick highlights, you know, they'd pick select parts of their day their most popular programs and then it wasn't and they and they put them up for usually maybe a couple weeks and it wouldn't it wasn't a permanent archive by any means though it would be pulled down right. you know um because they could only host so much at a time and then often even that they they would uh you know just edit it down to like particular parts of a program like one interview segment or something um and so they weren't even putting up like the whole one or two hour broadcast yeah. so just and pieces is, of segments this is the 90s you're talking about well, the late '90s, the and and into the that I think those practice is carried over into the two, yeah. early 2000s. No, I, I absolutely, I absolutely agree with that. It, I mean, in, in part uh, at the time, and uh, I was at the University of Illinois where I worked in in online media, and I collaborated with the public with folks at the public radio and television station hosted uh, there at the University of Illinois WILL. and you know I knew the guy Jack Brighton is his name who really was pushing the station to to be online and, you know, stealing, you not really stealing, but, you know, borrowing resources the best he could left and right. And universities often have a lot more at that time. We're known for having more internet resource servers, mm. connectivity and things like that than, than even like other average organizations outside of a university. So there was more to be had, but it was, he was really pulling teeth at the time to just archive, not 
all things considered, not network programming, but the programming that was produced locally right. uh, there at the station. Um, and, and eventually, you know, by, say, like 2005, uh, I, they were archiving most of it. But it, it, was, it was sort of, a, I, I remember, very much an uphill battle, very much a, a slow road there. Right. Since, and, uh, and, oh. No, uh, go ahead, Jennifer. Oh, since pa- Paul was also mentioning kind of experimentation in colleges, um, this is a bit of a divergence, but I know that um, college radio stations were some of the first to be streaming radio online. So right. um, you had mentioned to me, Andrew, that we're, we're at an important historical anniversary related to that dawn of internet radio and and i know there's a college radio connection so maybe you could draw that connection yeah so um you know most what we're talking about there with with established radio stations kind of going online um it was a really slow process and it was really you know there were some that did more and some did that did less and many that did nothing at all. And I'm talking about from the kind of mid nineties, even into the early two thousands, mostly though the radio industry really took a kind of wait and see attitude. They were like, and and they were very skeptical about developing things for the internet. Um, And, you know, in, in numerous cases, like they might partner with even like a real audio and, and real audio, you might know had a had a network early on where they were trying to have a kind of a you know um, an online radio network and they would license programming from NPR again. It was like sort of small segments from the most popular shows and things, and so NPR like yes they were but they were just basically selling bits of their programming to another buyer, which is what kind of they do um, with their with their with the stations in their network. So you know they weren't. None of the very few of these people, while they might be putting some things online, were not really actively developing one programming for the internet. And so it's really not until uh, the early mid 2000s that, like, even an NPR starts doing things like All Songs Considered, which is really cited as their sort of first online only program. But they also weren't developing much in the way of technology to really move you know, the, the internet and kind of the, and, and web audio forward. Um, they, again, they would kind of follow other people's innovations, but you need the people to sort of create those innovations first. And that's the really, that is a really interesting story that, you know, so I'll try to sum this up in a, in, in a couple main points. Cause it's, it's, it's a really like kind of twisty long history. Cause I'm talking about kind of all the nineties here. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm talking about a couple different threads of kind of, you know, uh, like streaming audio, like real audio, which is sort of going to be more on demand versus uh, simulcast, like live audio, live streaming audio of web, of, of broadcasts, of radio broadcasts. But, uh, what's the the the, bo- the kind of bottom line, and then I'll work backward a little bit, is that that for the most part, um, the it's going to be technologists and and even kind of hobbyists coming from the outside, who are more interested usually in playing with the web technology, um, kind of fiddling around in some cases even kind of hacking um, and using audio because in many ways it's, it was ex- accessible, certainly more accessible than video. Um, Rather, and that would kind of almost accidentally or inadvertently uh, create new opportunities for online audio, like and radio. Um, whereas then it was people from the radio establishment kind of trying to pioneer new ways of doing um, radio. So, to Jennifer's kind of specific question about the colleges, right? Um, so it's it's uh, in terms of simulcasting, 
so taking radio broadcasts and and putting them uh, simulcasting them online, it is a handful of college radio stations um, that were the first to do to t- to take their put their signals online for live. 24-7 simulcast mm. streaming. And we're talking here about December 1994. So fall um, 1994. Um, and so you get, there's really, th- I've identified kind of th- a trio of student-run college radio stations that were, and this really is an interesting Ooh, case. It's, it's the elusive firsts that were always uh, a little scared right. to mention. I know, and I'd only heard of two, so I'm excited that you have three. So so yeah, and and it, this is in my 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 bottom line here is that it really is a case of sort of simultaneous invention. They're all working on these things at the same time, mostly unaware of each other. Although you know, it seems like they did become a little bit aware of each other, but not really in like a, com- a competitive sense because you're mostly talking about students and many of them kind of you know uh, computer technologist students who happen to be affiliated with the radio stations, um, just wanting to kind of do something cool. Yeah. Right, um, and so, which, so which one, uh, who, who gets credit? Well, so you have WXYC at the University of uh, North Carolina Chapel Hill, so at UNC. Um, you have WREK at Georgia Institute of Technologies, Georgia Tech, um, and the other one is KJHK at the University of Kansas in Lawrence, so KU. And there's some disagreement about which station was the first to simulcast. Um, you know, WXYC and WREK both connected on November 7th, um, though WREK didn't go official with its uh, achievement until months later, whatever that means. Like, I think they didn't really announce it, basically. Sure. Um, and KJHK began simulcasting around December 3rd. So it was a, nearly a month later than the others. Um, but, uh, you know, there was some dispute amongst them about. Uh, the other ones like didn't really have their signals were fully up and running and they would keep dropping. And I think KGHK, uh, you know, claims that theirs was the first to sort of work steadily. Um, But, you know, it's interesting. Um, I I think a lot of credit really definitely WXYC at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill uh, was the most sort of fully developed initiative. I mean, they were working with, um, with Sunsight that's on the, like, you know, on, on their campus, um, which was a, sort of like an innovation lab. Um, and, and they were really working, you know, um, on their technology the, the, you know, as a, there were multiple people really kind of working on this initiative. Um, and whereas like WREK is basically like one dude mm-hmm. and W WJHK is also basically like one dude. Um, and this is a know, period of time when, you know, a lot of commercial radio stations might not have even had no. very functional websites to begin with. Exactly. So, you know, it's yeah. so different on a college campus where I think students were just much further ahead of the game, just simply even having a website. Absolutely. Yeah. No, like literally you go back through the literature that's there. I mean, the the, the tricky thing about the college radio is that like, you know, there was barely any press at all. And then the few articles that were like 
published or it's a little difficult to trust them. And so I've done a good, a decent amount of kind of a little of oral history and going back and talking to people and trying to piece together some other kind of primary documents to figure it, figure out the story. But yeah, what's interesting is if you're looking at what was happening in the world of commercial radio in terms of simulcasting, nothing. I mean, like you're saying, Jennifer, like the debate in like 1994 about radio and the web was like, should we have a website? Right, and, the, and know, these websites didn't have uh, didn't have streams, d- didn't have audio. Right. No, it was like, should we have a website pictures. that has like our schedule on it? Yeah, you yeah. know, and they really saw, and there was so much fear that being that the web would be um, would be comp- that they'd be competing with themselves essentially, yeah. right? Like that to go online, and then, again, we're not even really talking about streaming any you know putting any audio content online but it was seen as like it either just wasn't important it was kind of like oh well like you know we'll see like the web yeah like we're a radio station like you know being very diehard about being one medium and thinking that that would somehow just dilute themselves um or of course sometimes it was just they didn't you know it was actually still pretty expensive and difficult to get a website up and running well at, and so, at that you know, time they were preoccupied the commercial radio industry with consolidation i mean at, yeah. at this time their eye was not on that ball because uh the companies known as uh, clear channel now iheart radio and cumulus cumulus were busy building their empires hoarding uh radio stations by the dozens right. every week um, and cutting back, you know, rather than expanding. I mean, at that moment, I mean, right. not re- I mean, well, barely even. Well, cutting, I mean, in that moment, they were just really focused on buying radio stations and who right, on, on, as and, fast as they could. Right, and then trying to kind of and trying to streamline programming, and, and rather than like you know expand into new initiatives, they were trying to. Yeah, by the you time know, you hit uh, the two thousands, that that's that's definitely the mode they're in. And that's where, like, you know, NPR was, if we're going to look at outside of the college stations, like NPR and public radio more general, more generally, including community stations, um, you know, were more likely to be online with websites and more likely to be at least putting some programming online or trying to find ways of doing that because they, they uh, you know, they had more freedom to, uh, in, in that sense than the commercial stations, which you know, was, uh, and again, you'd often just have like a programming director that really wanted to do it. And at a bit, at a commercial station, like, you know, they're, to get approval to do something like that would have to run through a bunch of bosses at like a college station right. or a community station. It's like, Oh, you want to put some of our shows on the internet? Uh, okay, sure. <laughs> you know, it would just like that would, you know, so it didn't, it wasn't, um, you know, it didn't take a lot of effort. Um, and so what you got was just a bunch of people, uh, you know, all over the globe who were like, hey, I'm into the web and I'm into radio. Maybe we should put these things together um, and trying to find synergies between them, too, um, which is I don't know if you're ready for it, but the earlier history <laughs> That goes back even before this, That where there's the argument that you could even say podcasting goes back to 1993. Mm-hmm. Yes. In fact, that's something which we discussed a, a number of episodes ago uh, on episode number 160. We went back over some of that early history with Dom Robinson, who is a, uh, who is a uh, journalist and also an internet radio technologist himself, uh, who wrote, who's written an article, and I think he's got another one coming for uh, Streaming Media Magazine and streamingmedia.com. Right. Um, and so, yeah, I think there was some discussion in those, if I'm remembering, because I did, I did see the first of those articles about um, the internet multicasting service um, and Carl Malamud, yeah. um, who was – right. So, like, you know, um, I mean, that's a really interesting story. 
uh, and <laughs> maybe, maybe uh, for another time. Yeah, well, I'll just sort of say though, I'll keep it to the podcasting bit of it, right? So, um, so that launches. This is the so this is uh, the first internet radio operation of of really any kind, um, and it also and and so it's in March of 1993, March 31st, 1993, um, is when it goes. They go on the air um, with their first programming, um, and it's. Uh, Basically, the, if if you go back, so the first series, the first thing to broadcast was called Geek of the Week, um, and it was again the the it was the the network was called the Internet Multicasting Service, and then they sort of had their channel called Internet Talk Radio, um, and they eventually built to have multiple channels within a year or two, um, but their first program and their flagship program early on was called Geek of the Week, which was basically a show um, which, which interviewed. Uh, uh, internet technologists and they discussed like really wonky like ip um technology development kind of stuff like it was so it was super insidery um but you know talking about internet protocols and internet architecture and stuff like that but um the reason why this whole thing kind of existed right is that um malamud was not a radio person he was a technologist um and he was a he was a, a, a also like a kind of a an, an open government ag- advocate yeah um but he was trying to move and so he was like a big open standards person in kind of the internet community in the 80s and then coming into the early 90s and he was really part of one of you know a number of people who right uh here in the early 90s was really trying to develop kind of internet we're actually before the web has really become a big thing so we're really talking about the internet here um really move that technology forward and so he saw the way like he he kind of you know wisely saw um that the way to get um to push internet technology forward is that you had to dis dis uh sort of display or demonstrate different way uses of the medium and to prove that it could be useful to a broader audience mm. Um, and so he saw internet radio as one way that he could possibly um, sort of demonstrate the use, utility of the internet and to also then use it as a platform to kind of influence telecommunications policy that was governing the diffusion of the internet. So he wow. really fascinating. He started, yeah, he started creating this the, the, this uh, internet radio programming as really an, an incentive to lure people online and to demonstrate the potential of the of yeah. this new this new medium and and why though we might consider so that first that first um broadcast of geek of the week on March 31st 1993 um again we call it internet radio but it was i think you could call it a podcast it was a downloadable file exactly um, at its launch, the programs weren't broadcast or webcast. That technology for live streaming audio wasn't ready yet, right? Like I just said, you know, the college radio stations hadn't developed that 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 um, simulcast technology, which is mm. really the first streaming technology, because it's going to be in about another year or half a year after that that we start getting things like Real Player, which is going to allow for on-demand streaming. So I'm doing um, the so- math in my head, and I feel like you're now telling us about the significant anniversary. Yeah, so 25 years, depending on your definition. And I'm going to follow most people's definition of of podcasting as this kind of, uh, you know, digital Internet distributed, downloadable, even mobile um, audio. Um, That's what 
in uh, you know that's what Geek of the Week and, hmm. and internet uh, multicasting service uh, programming was in 1993. The way so the way they distributed it is that it was on demand in the sense that users had to download sound files from FTP sites and decompress them and then play them back on yeah there was their computers. They weren't, they weren't in MP3 because MP3 did no MP3 not exist yet. They were in .au and .gsm formats, which I don't know if you know what those are, but they were .au was like a Sun Microsystems format that was common on Next systems. So these are and all dot, yeah. Your audience is all primarily people who are themselves uh, researchers, scientists, computer scientists. Yes. They're at yeah. universities, they're at research labs, yeah. maybe government labs. These are, this is not the public, by and large. Most people Although don't it, have the internet at home, by and large. It is, it is really, a, you know, a very tiny, tiny community because if you had this .au file, getting it downloaded to your, your Mac or your, your window, you know, you didn't have a Windows PC, getting it downloaded to your, to your IBM AT. Right. Uh, and getting it to play uh, when you probably didn't even have a sound card or speakers was going to be all of those things were, were enormous hurdles yet to be overcome in in 1993. Although within just uh, a year or so, um, they started to develop a much broader range of programming that would be you know more in in the the realm of kind of what we would associate with kind of public yeah. radio talk programming that had a broader appeal. Um, a- again, tar- targeted at you know that kind of more educated, um, you know, a more, you, you know, um, sort of potentially at least mildly tech savvy audience that would have access to computers in places like, you know, working in finance or working um, in, you know, uh, higher education, you know, thinking about where computers with mm-hmm. internet access would have been located in the early mid nineties would have been in big institutions of government of higher education and, 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 you know, and finance and so on. So, but they were, you know, the programming really shifted pretty quickly from that really techie thing to being more kind of government stuff. They even did, uh, you know, some experiments of, of broadcasting kind of basically what we would associate with C-SPAN, you know, of, uh, of, of kind of congressional hearings and things. Um, they broadcasted stuff from the National Press Club. Um, and so they were really, you know, they were trying to get more and more people interested um, in the web and they were using internet audio or internet radio is what they called it at the time as a lore to try to get people online hmm. Um, it was yeah. It's still, we're not talking about a mass audience, and it still wasn't easy, and it was still you know, so still a limited audience. But you know, they, they called it asynchronous radio, um, which you know pointed again to the idea that it was like time shifted, right? Right. Um, so there was like it's just I think a big I, you know if I kind of like wrap things up in a little bow here. To me, one of the big I started off by saying you know I kind of am a little skeptical of of that technological definition of podcasting. And I think it's more just sort of definitions of podcasting and taxonomy and all that is that a big issue with, you know, when did podcasting start exactly? And what exactly do we call podcasts? is because that name shifted, you know, what Malamud was doing in 1993, you know, he was calling it radio. He was calling it internet radio. Um, what these other folks like Noah Glass and Oddblog were doing in, in 2003, they were calling it audio blogging. Um, it wasn't until 2004 that that term podcasting came into being. And I think that term podcasting, while it actually did, it did a huge amount to help popularize the medium because finally people could kind of identify it as a thing. Um, and of course, attaching it to the iPod, you know, as much as 
sort of producers nowadays like hate the pod in podcasting, you know, like a lot of radio people who are working in podcasting, you know, they hate that name. They just want to call it audio or whatever. Right. Um, that early on the name podcasting did it was, was huge. It really helped break the medium wide open. But, um, that term just came into being, you know, a lot of people credit Ben Hammersley with this article in The Guardian coming up with that name podcasting. But if you even look back at that article, what he was writing about, he was trying to describe a bunch of different phenomenon, audio kind of phenomenon that had been online for a couple years. And he actually throws out a bunch of different names. He's like, do we call it like DIY radio? Do we call it guerrilla radio? He's like, how about podcasting? That one name, podcasting, stuck. But and he, he mentions audio blogging too. What happened there is that there were all these other ter- people were just calling it different things. And so once we decided on the name podcasting, it kind of obscured all of the things that had been done under those different names. Ah. you know. And so um, and so right, people cause, think because Gorilla Radio is something entirely different. Except they were using the term at the same that was being used to describe the same thing. <laughs> it was like there's this thing, there's these programs that are online and people are doing it. They're like these audio blogs, you know. And then he just works through like we could call them all these different things. And he says yeah. podcasting. And then once people pick up on podcasting, they start focusing on like something else, right? Like, and so a lot of the things that have been done, but they were all related. Like everyone understood that there was like a relationship between blogging and podcasting. And and the fact that there were these audio blogs, while they might have been fairly little used, like they were used and it wasn't a mystery to anyone that they were out there. But once we just settled on podcasting, people used that as a way to kind of break it away from what had happened earlier, and I'm talking about earlier, maybe even as back into the 1990s. And I mentioned, you know, 1993 and Carl and, and, and Malamud and all that. But there is a bunch of other things that happened in the late 90s um, that kind of at least we could call proto-podcasts. Like there, yeah. were a bunch of, there were a bunch of different things that were online-only audio that, um, you know, that, that in, in some cases never even broadcast – you know, never streamed live, so they were just posted online. So that that would fit like uh, what we call podcasting, but they were sort of fairly isolated incidents. That uh, you know, um, and, 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 and I think with small audiences, they often weren't downloadable. I mean, I, I think that that is to me uh, on demand as I know streaming. That, that you don't like the the technological definition. I think the, the there is a mark between between streaming and downloadability, at least in the development of the history of podcasting. It, it may well, become could, less important as we go forward. But you could have downloaded, you could download like Pseudo's audio programming for that was distributed in, in real player format. You could? I mean, I thought you needed, yeah. I mean, I, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to question you on it because having worked in, in, in that, in that field at that time, um, pseudo stuff was streamed you, it was if you could download it it was you had you had to hack it i'm not sure yeah that's this is this right is fun. i guess that's I, what I, I remember. going down a rabbit hole you know, i remember it, this yeah, time yeah, though because that yeah, was think, the fun we'll part about won. that was the fun part about real audio the files are dot ra files and uh you're not allowed to save them on your computer you click on them and your real audio player plays right. them and it's right, locked right. away from you yeah. don't get to control what happens it wasn't next the dis- it wasn't the intended distribution model even if obviously there, there there's always but, a workaround but there was there yeah, were ways right. to click three other things if you found this out that you could end up with a real audio file in yes, uh, yes, in your yes. on your hard drive that you could then manipulate yes yeah that's the rabbit hole 
So, Andrew Bottomley, thank you for uh, helping to unobscure some of this hidden history of, of podcasting and illuminate, you know, the different ways in which people were were using and posting, you know, personal audio online going back before 2004 into the early 2000s. Um, it's really fascinating, but really helps us, I yeah. think, understand to some extent, you know, how we get to where we are right now. Yeah, I wonder um, if, if we can ask Andrew to kind of put a button on today's conversation. How how do you think that this um, complex and extremely diverse history of what came to be called podcasts, like why why do you think it's important for us to be talking about today uh, here on this radio program? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, if there's if there's anything that to me maybe work makes this sort of all very uh i mean apart from just having an interest in, in sort of history and, and um, wanting to sort of understand the origins um is if we want to talk about podcasting as being this unique form which i think you know nowadays when people talk about you know what makes sort of podcasting interesting you know what makes you know what draws them to podcasting um you know as as an outlet right they're going to talk about you know it's it generally isn't the technology right you know they're going to talk about the it as a medium that's accessible right that a media as a medium that um allows for you know the formation of communities right and and particularly allows for certain types of of kind of expression that maybe we don't um always get in radio although i one of my things that we haven't gotten into here today is like i, I want to upplay the connections between radio and podcasting more than a lot of people where a lot of people try to downplay them but nevertheless th- there's this kind of we're, if we're looking at what's i think really interesting um in 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 the medium it's this kind of unscripted unedited chat this sort of venue for these more sort of personal stories um you know more kind of effective expression um and uh you know this aesthetic if you will um that has really taken hold and i yeah. think a lot of that uh in podcasting and again if you talk to many of the producers who are working particularly in the in the realm of kind of audio storytelling quote unquote um, you know, these sort of more produced sort of sound rich podcasts that are coming out of that kind of um, a public radio sphere, um, which is where a lot of the buzz around podcasting is. You know, you know, there's uh, there's tons of the chat casts and everything, but a lot of the attention when people talk about yeah. podcasting and the so so golden age of podcasting is that kind of because sound of rich storytelling. And serial and all that, but like what they often point to is the difference between that and radio is going to be you know there's a there's a number of things um, about sort of this, uh, 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 but one of the big things is that sort of style of kind of me- this that sort of new form of kind of mediated speech um, that's sort of again kind of a, a hybrid of the personal um, and and the public, yeah. and I really think that there's th- that that really has a lot of roots here in what we've been discussing in the sort of early audio blogging, um, where it was really kind of a convergence of talk radio and of blog writing, and also of kind of private telephone conversation. 
Um, and I think so. Yeah, that's that's the thing that I think really um, is is a kind of a legacy of the of that early audio blogging, which has mostly been obscured and 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 didn't really fully develop. You know, there's in a way there's a story here of a future um, that 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 got cut short, right? You know, yeah. because we kind of we have what what happened post two thousand five was really a number of different kind of radio genres kind of getting taken up in podcasting. You know, you sort of had the chat cast, which is like, you know, you're more kind of, you know, uh, kind of talk radio style. And then you had, you know, you had your kind of more aud- like audio documentary kind of feature style, you know, this American lifestyle programs and things. And, and, uh, and, and in a, way, a lot of ways it kind of closed off podcasting. Um, you know, even though there's certainly thousands and thousands of podcasters out there, um, it's not as nearly democratized as, as like everyone's a radio broadcaster, as I think the a lot of the utopian hopes were a few years earlier. Um, and maybe it's kind of starting to come back around now as, as the sort of technology has become, you know, more inexpensive and, and uh, people have been kind of more emboldened to, to sort of enter into podcasting after the successes of things like Serial. Um, but again, if, if we we're going to look at kind of what makes for the aesthetic of a podcast, I think that you can definitely look at the into early audio blogging as being uh, as as being very kind of influential mm-hmm. in terms of how how that style kind of has developed and taken hold. You definitely want me to dig more into those early audio blogs, Andrew. It's fascinating. Okay. Yeah, I, I think so too. <laughs> Well, uh, Andrew Bottomley, Assistant Professor of Media Studies in the Department of Communication and Media at SUNY Oneonta. Thank you so much for joining us today on Radio Survivor. Oh, thank you for having me. It's been wonderful. This is a very rich vein we have tapped, and there's so much more yet that we uh, will discuss with Andrew Bottomley. Well, and we've talked about this on previous episodes. A lot of other contributions to the history. There's not one history of podcasting there's lots of them and we, we spoke with uh jennifer you connected us with with a professor jennifer wong uh who wrote about women's voices in the early days of of what we call podcasts right yeah and and she talks about well we talked a lot about you know just because we're not aware of a history doesn't mean that it didn't exist so yeah. <laughs> and andrew points that out too that you had people who were recording these messages these very personal messages by calling a phone number links to that episode where uh, other episodes where we talked about the history of podcasts in the show notes for today on radio survivor.com. And Paul, you also did, as you mentioned in the body of the interview, you did an entire episode about uh, the history of internet radio that I think is related. Yeah. To the, the, that, that history leading it back 25 years with Dom Robinson, who, who has another article coming out soon. I hope uh, in streaming media magazine, kind of following up and talking about some of that history which we touched on very briefly about real audio, which kind of popularized and made uh, internet radio much more practical there in the uh, in the mid 1990s. So there's very much more to explore. We'll definitely have uh, Andrew on the show again. Of course, if you want to learn more about everything we've talked about here on today's show, go to radiosurvivor.com slash podcast. This is episode number 167. And that's, of course, where you can go back and listen to all of our episodes, many of the yeah. ones that we've talked about here, including um, including uh, last week's episode about um, uh, challenges or threats 
to community media currently being faced at the FCC, and we have a yeah, minor, we have a minor defunding. Yeah, a, a, a very significant defunding of public access television stations, as well as community uh, access to the internet, which is. Uh, yeah. which our guest Sabrina Roach discussed. And, and Sabrina had asked for a minor correction to that episode where Sabrina mentioned that a new form of the internet, uh, mobile internet, 5G is going up around uh, cities around America and it's going to be the cutting edge of you know the private mobile internet. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be very fast and very exciting. And uh, one of the reasons Sabrina mentioned it is because um, – uh, cities' uh, abilities, like the city of San Jose, for instance, uh, are not necessarily going to be able to charge these telecom companies for the use of the telephone poles uh, the way that they were prior to the FCC. Yeah, the right of way. So rules. yeah, normally yeah, cities are able to to charge uh, companies for the use of the public right of way and for public lands to yeah. put out this. And 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 the companies have said that well, all we're putting out there is is this device the size of a pizza box, right? Pizza and, box, and, or and, and Sabrina, and Sabrina said backpack. And she and regrets that's using a, an the exaggeration. metaphor. Yeah, she regrets using the metaphor backpack. It would appear as though pizza box or backpack might have. It's uh, more like a mini fridge. Yeah, it's bigger <laughs> than that. Uh, Sabrina texted me a photo of it and said it's much more like a mini fridge. And 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 why that's important is that we're talking about quadrupling or quintupling the size of the device compared to what a pizza box renders in your mind and that's space yeah. right and that's infrastructure that needs to go out up, there so up she on just the, want to put that correction up on, on the pole above you on the sidewalk every yeah, uh, every, exactly. every block one or two of these things it so learn like. more about that by going back to our previous yeah. episode number 166 over at radiosurvivor.com slash podcast if and you then, have any comments about anything you've heard oh, is there something else yeah there's something else and you know who knows if this makes it into the radio show but episode one of radio survivor when it was only a podcast oh, yeah. featured uh, cheyenne homan of the free music archive and uh, the reason I was so excited to talk to Cheyenne about the Free Music Archive is because uh, even though, I mean, it was it was our first episode because I just uh, am a huge fan of what this website was. Um, it's a part of community radio culture. It's a part of the internet. It's a part of the fascinating history of streaming music online. And we covered a little of that in episode one way back in uh, when did we found our our humble podcast balls in 2015 yeah and um the internet archive uh, or the free music archive um will be shutting down probably uh as soon as you hear the sound of my voice it may have already shut down unless they um sort of have a a, a, a stay of of turning of un, unplugging the the servers we'll see unless they find either uh, someone comes forward with a massive amount of funding yeah. or but, um, another organization takes it over but I so I just wanted to acknowledge that this uh, my favorite website is uh, going offline because of changes uh, that yeah, that, yeah there's that so we're, much more we're gonna I can get into it actually I, I reached out to Cheyenne and we're gonna get into it uh, oh, on, on future episodes of Radio Survivor but I just wanted oh, to that's good I, I, I just I, wanted to acknowledge now. Um, how much I care for that website and how yeah. uh, it going dark um, sort of leaves uh, it hurt. It actually, I was actually grieving the Free Music Archive this week in a way that I didn't really know uh, would impact me. It, it was an emotional well, drain. It's one of these things you kind of thought would always be there, so yeah. it's uh, it's a big surprise and very unfortunate. Yeah, it's a lot like losing a radio station. It's it's a familiar feeling to me when I've lost radio stations I've loved. 
uh, that's how it feels to lose the Free Music Archive. But I know that it will live on both as a thing that is celebrated because the people who loved it are probably going to talk about it or blog about it or write about it, but also um, they're going to archive it as best they can. There's different attempts to archive it. So that's all. I just wanted to mention that. If you have any comments about anything you've heard today or on any episode of the show, please drop us a line, podcast at radiosurvivor.com. We are also a listener and reader-funded enterprise. To learn how you could help us out, go to radiosurvivor.com slash support. Thank you, Eric. Thank you, Paul. And thank you, Jennifer, for bringing Andrew to us for this interview. Sure. Yeah, happy to do so. And thanks, everyone, for spending another hour with us. 